Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Tom Moschio of Moschio Consulting. Um, Tom has just written a book recently published in November titled The Digital Cultures, Live Stories, and Virtual Reality. So we're going to talk about his uh, career coming, of course, from academic anthropology to his consulting company, which he's now run for the past 19 years, almost 20, in fact, uh, has a great client list, includes companies like Google and YouTube and Citibank and Merck and Porsche and you name it. It's kind of all over the map, but giant names that everybody knows. So he's obviously done great work over the years. So Tom, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Would you start by telling everybody how you first got interested in anthropology? Okay. First, uh, Matt, thanks for having me on. And it's a pleasure to tell my story. So uh, how I got into uh, business anthropology, it's kind of a... uh, it wasn't by design. Uh, people of my generation who, who first made their way into business anthropology typically were a traditional academics, traditionally academic anthropologists at first. Uh, in fact, I spent a number of years in the rainforests of Papua New Guinea uh, studying the ritual and ceremonial life and the emotional culture of a Melanesian people. And had no idea that I'd wind up in in business anthropology. Um, After uh, a a few years of postdoctoral work um, and a second stint in the field in uh, Papua New Guinea, um, I came back and came close to getting a number of academic full-time jobs, but uh, never quite panned out, uh, came close, as I said. And I was faced with the future prospect of being an adjunct assistant professor of anthropology, which I was for a while. And um, so I was considering a career change. And then a completely fortuitous event occurred. Um, A friend of mine, another anthropologist, um, happened to be getting married. And during the time he was getting married, he was supposed to be doing a uh, fieldwork project in business anthropology for a person by the name of John Lowe, uh, and uh, was an archaeologist, um, and uh, but had made his way somehow into consulting in ways that are unclear to me. Anyway, I stepped in <laughs> uh, and, and did this project, and um, someone heard about it by the name of Ilse Schumacher, um, and heard about me. And Ilsa was another anthropologist um, who had studied at the London School of Economics, had done her work in the Middle East, her field work. And uh, she had a husband, the name of uh, Stuart Hazelwood, who worked in advertising. And uh, one of his accounts was General Motors. And um, he thought, and they needed some research uh, uh, done uh, on um, she- the, c- the category of uh, trucks and uh, Chevy trucks. And uh, she said, well, give me a chance. I can do research. In fact, that's what I've been trained to do. I just need a little help. Um, I've heard of this guy's name is Tom Moscow. He did a good job for John Lowe. Let me, let me just give him a chance and, and a bunch of other people. So that was my first kind of entree into the world of 
business anthropology. I wasn't called that yet. It was just, we were just researchers, you know, we weren't. And the idea of an anthropologist doing this sort of work was just so <laughs> almost incomprehensible to many of the brand managers and strategic planners that I worked with at first, that you really were a novelty act. Um, anyway, that, that project turned out quite well. We developed this idea of a sacred space, uh, sacred masculine space in the um, correlating ideas of gender with uh, this commodity, the uh, Chevy truck. And um, it resulted in a very uh, famous advertising campaign uh, on, um, on the Chevy truck. And um, from there on, she kept getting General Motors contracts. And uh, so we did a lot of work in the automotive space. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, I worked freelance and I still kept my kind of day job, I guess you'd say as an adjunct assistant professor, but then I just started dropping that. And um, she offered me a full-time job uh, and we established a two-person outfit called Cultural Dynamics. And business people started, um, especially in the advertising space, started really considering what value added we were bringing to the table and they started seeing that this research was quite different and quite it could lead to quite compelling insights for them. And it powered a lot of successful advertising campaigns. It powered a lot of design modifications in the anthropology of design. It wasn't called that then, but um, we did do some design work. And we started to get into other categories beside automotive. We worked in, I remember, um, very interesting project on sneakers, sneaker culture we did for Foot Locker. And that was actually one of my first really in-depth projects where I I went to many, many uh, uh, markets and we're trying to suss out their different approaches to and understandings of sneaker culture and athletic fashion. It was one of the first times that I really started to think that this was what I was doing this sort of research and interviewing was really was real anthropology. It was real. Um, you had to really draw on sophisticated theoretical models uh, to interpret what consumers were saying about what they were doing, and then um, you had to kind of. And this is another skill I had to learn as a business anthropologist, which was to simplify my language. Um, and, and speak in a way to clients so that they could understand. And I had to translate my, my ideas into quite simple uh, uh, declarations for them. It had a very salutary effect, I think, on the way I write and the way I think. I've had to simplify my language. I think that's one of the hardest skills that an anthropologist and academic can learn, uh, has to learn when he comes into this new arena. Sure. is to communicate effectively to, to clients. And that was the first project where I, I really started to do that. And it was, it was successful. So the added value was these toolkits of ideas and techniques that I brought from academics and placed them in another context where they were novel. And at that time, these toolkit of ideas, this toolkit of methodologies, ways of questioning and interviewing people, ways of looking uh, at things were, were quite novel in, in, in the, the business space. Mm-hmm. And, and people started to, to uh, recognize that. Thanks for sharing that. that. That's a lot, of course, to unpack. Now, yeah. um, you know, you said the, the sneaker project was like the first project that you thought was very anthropological, or at least where it resonated that it, it, it you're clearly doing anthropology research. So, Bef- Let's just talk about the period before that briefly. So, you know, you're in this era where there's not a great appreciation for what anthropology can bring in business. You're doing research that might not be global at that time. Um, maybe it was a little less, you know, kind of quote unquote anthropological, but nonetheless, you were bringing value. And so what did, what did that really look like in that period? Were you, you know, were people, um, 
resistant to your ideas in the beginning? And were you sort of pushing through or were they just letting you do whatever you wanted and then shocked by the outcome? Interesting question. I would get questions such as, what is an anthropologist? You know, what are you doing here? Uh, don't you study peripheral cultures or tribal cultures? What are you doing here with General Motors or Footlocker? With, um, how can this apply? So this is, there was this kind of cognitive roadblock that was there. Um, it's a roadblock having to do with a categorization of what different careers mean. Um, so we, at the beginning, there was that blockage there. But then, um, slowly over time, partly through our efforts at dialoguing with people about what they needed and the kind of impactful information they needed, they slowly began, it slowly began to dawn on them that this was kind of useful um, research and that there were many dimensions, many more dimensions to it than the kind of research that they were doing at the time, which was, I would say, would characterize it as functionalist or turnkey research. <clears throat> Instead of asking what systems of meaning, what, you know, what are people weaving around this product or service mm -hmm. such that they're giving it meaning? And how can that meaning then be fed back into uh, uh, your advertising or your design of the pro redesign or of the product, um, I think that they were starting to see that not only was I kind of observing the meanings that people were weaving around goods and services, and they had to be clued into what people, what meaning their products and services had for people, but by using me, they could actually put meaning back into the world <laughs> or into their, into their, um, into their products, goods, and services. So let me just use this example of um, virtual reality, which is in my book that we'll talk about later. But um, so people came to me. It's not very different from what people back then, when I first started off, uh, came to me for. They said, what, what is this medium of communication? How do we create story kind of creation guideposts for creator people working in this field now what do people get out of this new media of this media communication this vr technology what you know what how can we talk about it um and so you have to divine for the benefit of this technology company you, it's aesthetic and experiential character of the new communication medium in this case it was vr then you watch as the company feeds that information back into the various representations of the technology as they upgrade and refine it. And so they're putting these meanings that you discovered back into the technology in a certain way. And so you're continually putting kind of meaning back into the product. You're not only discovering meaning, you're, you're putting meaning into the product and service. Same thing early on, um, same thing. Uh, I was a young, I don't know how young, but I was, I was just getting into the field, and um, we did a project for AC Delco. <laughs> AC Delco was a company uh, made these spark plugs and other automotive things. And um, I remember being in a meeting, and one of the AC Delco guys near retirement. He was an old GM executive. He he, he took a spark plug, AC Delco part, and he. And he just put it in front of my face. And he said, how do people get involved? How are they going to get involved with any advertising messaging I create about this thing? <laughs> There's no meaning around this. What am I supposed to do with this? You know, can you help me out? So what does an anthropologist do in that sort of situation? Uh, well, he contextualizes the product or service or good or whatever in a field of meanings. That's the first step. So what we wound up doing was a kind of study of gender and automotive care and how that breaks down along, how automotive care breaks down along gender lines and the different approaches and understandings and fears that women and men have about automotive care and um, 
So we did a whole study about that. And um, we kind of uh, genderized the, the, uh, the AC Delco, the kind of so, sort of meaningless cipher of um, this, te this technology. And we found the category to be extraordinarily emotionally involved. Uh, women felt threatened and continually uh, taken advantage of and undermined by car mechanics when they went into this hyper-masculine space of um, getting their car fixed at the car mechanics office. And um, uh, men felt uh, quite a lot of responsibility for maintaining the family's fleet of cars or vans or whatever for broke down or reflected on their self-image. So it was a whole, it was a whole field of, of meaning that, mm -hmm. that was, that the, the object, the technology was kind of sunk into that we had to decipher. And so when we did that, uh, it's just kind of an aha moment for these, some of these business executives that, oh yeah. And what I'm doing is not just functional or, we, you know, we could go a step beyond the turnkey, the functionalist, into this, make the move, they didn't have this language, into the semiotic, into this, the world of, and field of meaning. And, that, and that's, that's really what anthropology originally, you know, brought to the table uh, for people. Uh, it was a whole other way of talking about their goods and services. And uh, it also inspired hopefully for some of them anyway it really gave them in the in the best pro the projects where we were most successful it gave them more of a sense of mission that what they were dealing with were quite meaningful aspects or, or mm -hmm. um, uh, dimensions of their products and services that they had to understand in new ways in order to be effective as business people and so when speaking of meaning to people while we would appreciate its importance i suppose you could say to some maybe it could be seen as like soft or you know something um hard to communicate even and so in the outset you said one of the, the skills that you had to learn and that any business anthropologist needs to learn is really to you know is communication skills how to be brief how to distill it down and so how did you go about selling the concept of looking into meaning? Like, how did you actually, how have you convinced people that looking into that is really important and that's going to empower, whether it's ads or design, whatever it may be? Well, nothing sells like success. And we inspired a number of uh, successful ad campaigns, um, which were me measured through ROI, just... Uh, and that got people's attention that these messages based on anthropological analysis and meaning uh, uh, worked. <laughs> I mean, to put it, to put it bluntly. Uh, and so people started to paying attention for the good of their own careers, really. Um, Just staying on ROI for a second, because it's something that always comes up. Now, you had a, you know, a very simple way of explaining that, which was ad performance. Um, or success, it, it gets a little harder in other areas of of business anthropology. Maybe even design, you know, of uh, physical products in the past. Presumably, you could probably make the argument that was a little harder to gauge um, in digital projects uh, products today. It's a little bit easier because of analytics and such things. Uh, and then, as you get into organizational. Okay. It maybe arguably even becomes a little bit stickier to sort of point to the ROI. So over the course of your, your career, have you, you know, I know you said you were in design spaces. So have you been in other areas where it becomes a little less hard to communicate your value? And have you found any interesting ways to work around that to show, you know, the value you're bringing to the project? People, where people showed the most resistance because of politics of uh, business organizations were the... Uh, organizational projects where we took a look at um, business culture, for instance, and how it, how it should function better or whatever, or um, what was going wrong uh, because of the politics, internal politics of any organization. That, that's really, uh, it's really where you, you get a lot of uh, pushback that people don't like to be feeling that they're, someone's looking over their shoulder or, <laughs> or uh, someone's kind of going to make a design modification in the way their 
processing information. I mean, it's just um, those are the hardest projects where the anthropologist has to have the most tact, I would say. So uh, take a recent uh, example of it. We were situated in a bunch of newsrooms um, across the country in this incredibly stressful time when journalism is, um, just to put it on the wane, so to speak, uh, incredible. Uh, it's being challenged uh, as fake news. Uh, it's 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 searching for new um, ways of supporting itself as advertising dollars switch to uh, the great media and tech companies. The, their messages are uh, continually questioned by people for it. And so it's a very fraught moment in journalism. And being kind of embedded in these various newsrooms kind of brought that to the fore. So people are quite touchy about what's going on and what you're doing there. But um, so... I don't know, the way to overcome that was to really get to know these people, to see and follow the story creation process from A to B, to um, show where there were kind of roadblocks and difficulties in the transition to digital, and to really understand what the function of journalism is and was, and make a point-by-point -point case for changes that could be instituted and uh, why. And uh, after months spent earning the uh, establishing rapport with these journalists and talking with them about what they were doing and how they were creating stories, you know, we got to that level of trust. And, and uh, there's a bunch of design changes or story creation changes that they instituted based on our recommendations. And mm -hmm. they bought into it, you know, um, so it's getting buy-in in those sorts of ways, in ways that make sense. So there's a, there is rhetoric and convincing involved in being an anthropologist. You just you don't just observe and write. You have to actively engage with people, understand where they're coming from, understand how they do things traditionally. Like, a, how does this particular journalist make a story, and what are the roadblocks as he conceives it or she conceives it to uh, creating this story? And so. Um, once you understand their dilemmas that they're faced with, then you can couch whatever recommendations you have in a much more nuanced and sympathetic, empathetic way, in ways that convince them. So the anthropologist has to be a bit of a politician and a, has to use rhetoric to, to justify what he's doing in those sorts of contexts, which are quite, um, you don't just deliver the truth in any project. You have to convince people mm -hmm. about the validity of what you're saying. You have to do it with sometimes a good deal of passion. You're not, uh, you have to have a point of view and you have to be willing to articulate that, articulate that point of view eloquently and passionately. And um, you have to justify it with your, your background and what you know. Um, so sometimes you're wrong, <laughs> but in this case, we were right. Now, you just said that, you know, Sometimes you might be wrong, uh, which happens, happens to everybody. Sometimes you might also be right, but they just don't want to hear it. Um, and so, you know, given that you are, you know, if, you know, with your own company and the company before that, you know, you're 20 plus years doing this. What have you learned from those times where maybe you need to uh, potentially even walk away, you know, from a project or... You know, just those times where you're you're not going to maybe convince somebody, and that there is pressure against you for one reason or another to maybe do something unethical, or that they just you know somebody doesn't really want your view in there because maybe it impacts their life. You know, anything that you've learned to to sort of help navigate, uh, I guess, a situation that you can't fix. There was one project where the entire interpretation was so against the grain for this group that they could not conceptual, they could not see going in the direction I was recommending. Uh, they were passionately committed to this, this model. In those cases, you have to, act, have to act as more of an advocate for those positions. However, sometimes you may disagree with their um, functionality, but you 
you have to work to refine them and but not kind of do any major um, design changes to the model uh, otherwise you're just you just the curtain comes down so I, may, I that was a mistake on my part I, I should have recognized that right away that this was one of those instances where um, I should not have just gone ahead guns blazing and just presented my analysis so another thing that the anthropologist has to do is understand his his clients he's understanding the clients customers or and technologies and services in a way that his his customers react to these things but he has also has to understand i'm sure you've heard this before he has to understand the client and you know how far they're willing to go and so often in my my project briefs i i allocate time and money interviewing um on the client side and seeing what they're before I go and, and do consumer ethnographies and just seeing who they are and what they're thinking. Got it. So I want to ask one more question before we get to the book. Um, and I guess, you know, in your career, you've obviously touched a lot of different projects. You've kind of touched like the three, you know, major legs of kind of the business anthropology stool, if you will, with kind of, you know, consumer behavior and design, um, and organizational, but there are many emerging areas, um, both you could say that we're working in, um, but where do you see maybe the industry going, or at least, you know, what, what you think you're going to be focusing on over the next period of time, whether that's five years or whatever it may be. Well, this book was kind of my pushback against what, where I see things going, which is the diminution of, uh, the human experience, um, the switch to algorithmic analysis, I guess you would say, and uh, the cult of quantification and big data, um, which is only only going to get uh, more more powerful. Despite all the controversy surrounding AI, for instance, um, but uh, now is really the time for a humanistic and um, semiotic analysis of AI, this technology, and uh, people are. T I almost started that, and people were uh, touchy about that, uh, as, as you can imagine, with all the controversy surrounding it. Um, but but I think that the reason I wrote this book was that the human experience seems to, as Jonathan Cook. Uh, podcaster who I know who interviewed me for a podcast, the human experience seemed to possibly can be fading from these sorts of analyses. And um, it's interesting that even these big tech companies, um, they hired me to leaven their data, you know, to, to, to provide a crucial humanistic element. So I'm, I'm part of a small coterie of people who kind of frame things as providing a bit of pushback to these these trends um, and, and saying, wait a minute, um, um, we need we need uh, humanistic and, and um, semiotic analysis of these things still. And and um, the answer isn't always complete completely um, the algorithm or whatever. The algorithms, too, are, of course, as people have often said, uh, humanly created things and, and they bring certain biases to interpretation or whatever. So uh, I think there's always a space. <laughs> there's never a technology that can deliver the truth. I mean, technology is an element of culture like anything else, like religion, like kinship, like uh, uh, economic behavior. And uh, it's subject to the same forms of anal anthropological analysis as anything else, uh, but we we worship we worship hard science, um, big data. We think it cuts through everything and can really tell us everything. And so, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that what and that's why I kind of wrote this book, which is basically about emergent technology and. Uh, how it reflects older and sometimes forms of behavior and belief and um, 
that these technologies are not, in a human sense, um, something completely, they're new in you know, forms of behavior and this technology, but the, the behaviors that they instantiate or inspire can, can sometimes have older cultural roots. And anyway, a long way of saying that there's still a place for humanistic anthropology for semiotic analysis, and uh, even in the emergent. And there's a place for a bit of pushback, I think, against the, the cult of quantification and big data. There's that uh, the two should really be joined in, in various ways to be effective. Humanistic analysis and big data analysis. And the big data has to be analyzed in an anthropological sense. The technologies have to be analyzed in an anthropological sense. So you had at the outset of that started saying how, you know, you, you sort of feel that the human experience is fading away and that, that prompted you to write the book. The And I'm not challenging you on that necessarily, but I have a question that might seem that way. But So it's kind of interesting because in tech, you know, you've seen probably the greatest rate of hiring of anthropologists yeah. over the past five <laughs> years into UX roles. Now, yeah. there's obviously a debate around how how. Right. deep UX research, you know, really is at this point. Right. Um, and if it's maybe even more of like a checkbox of sort of something you have to have. Sometimes. But I guess, you know, what's your take on that? Despite the fact that you now see so many anthropologists in the industry, do you, do you see them contributing to bringing the experience back in? Or do you see that their voice, that they're going through like this sort of routine, but then their voice is being silenced? Do you have any viewpoint on that? You know, uh, I'm me, and I'm, uh, in some ways, I'm sort of isolated from, uh, you know, I'd have to do the ethnography of them, to, like I did the ethnography of journalists before I could really speak persuasively to you about that. Um, so what I'm going to say is kind of off the cuff, but um, it, there is a certain, where, where it was very unfashionable, almost unthinkable when I started for an anthropologist to be, involved in a business setting now it's it's getting to the point where it's quite fashionable to have an anthropologist there uh whether you want him or her to act as an anthropologist may be <laughs> beside the point that he's filling his role as a uh a checkbox or whatever uh so and i've heard some stories i mean about anthropologists kind of going to lots of meetings and it's good to have you there, and, but their the recommendations or ways of thinking aren't quite <laughs> absorbed or utilized. Or uh, but um, so part of my thing is it's, it's partly fashion, but inevitably, since they're talented people and they're there, they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be making their contributions and uh, they're going to change things. I think it's really, I think it's really important that they're there and that they observe what's going on and that they eventually there's going to come a tipping point in Malcolm Gladwell's terms that the anthropological uh, kind of analysis and, and ways of going at things is going to be accepted. So I think this is a really good, a really good tr trend and uh, it, it counteracts the cult of big data. I think that's we see in quantification. Mm -hmm. So you explained why you wrote the book and gave us a little bit of, you know, a little bit of understanding about it. Is there anything that you didn't, you know, that the book also contains that you didn't have a chance to already describe? The book is about um, the emergence of a new, what I call story culture. Um, and it's based on um, the idea that the way we communicate and, and experience story in the present time is quite different than it was in the proximate past. So the book is meant to chart the emergence of this new story culture. And that's really kind of the key idea that a new form of narrative is emerging. And people are using these new technologies in ways that establish this new story culture. And uh, the book is meant to analyze in different contexts, 
you know, what this story culture is and its many dimensions in order so that commercial communicators, uh, engineers, technologists, journalistic story creators, people who design uh, and try to further uh, social media platforms' effectiveness, um, before they can do that, they have to understand how story is being told with these technologies. So it's, uh, it's really analysis of the emergence of a new story culture. And uh, so it was very satisfying to me as a humanistic anthropologist to be able to read, you know, literary criticism and theories of narrative and, uh, and performance studies, which outline how people perform story in various contexts, and to apply all that to these seemingly most advanced uh, technological, these techno new technologies. Um, and so we looked at, and I looked at how stories were being told through these new technologies and try to understand the historical elements there. So part of the argument is that there are historical roots to the forms of storytelling that we're inventing through these technologies or reinventing through these technologies to chart that in different contexts. So uh, it was my take on, on that. That was the most exciting thing for me. Um, now, what constitutes a story, though, for you? Like, you know, is, is Twitter, right? Does, I mean, Twitter contributes, obviously, to a larger story, I would say. But, you know, is there... What, what's sort of like the minimum amount of, and I don't really mean to quantify it, but like, you know, is a tweet a story in its own right in some way, or does it just contribute to a larger one? You know, like we, we have such brief, it seems like such brief communication today compared to the past. And so is there, is there any dividing line here? Well, uh, part of the emerging story culture, one of the chapters in the book is on social media and the way we communicate today. Another is on VR as an emerging communication media. Um, it's another chapter on reading behaviors and um, language use on social media devices <laughs> and on social media platforms. Um, so there are a whole bunch of issues there. It's kind of hard to unpack, uh, you know, in a soundbite. But, um, sure. but uh, you know, I look at, in one of the chapters of the book, I look at the different, different, I choose different social media platforms and look at the language used in each one and do an analysis, semiotic linguistic analysis of each one. So, and basically arguing that the argument of that chapter is that people are, besides all the criticism of social media, which I get into, let's just put those asides, aside for a minute the productive aspect of what's happening in many social media aspect uh, platforms is that people are cultivating different aspects of themselves um, and exploring many of the dimensions of what it means to be human today. Um, so Twitter has this truncated, sharp, but almost comic, stand-up comic <laughs> uh, form of language where, where there are these brief uh, statements and then clapbacks and it's a kind of uh, one-upmanship that's going on. So, and people are kind of refining, and um, it's kind of a hive mind, kind of an intellectual, brief, sharp intellectual aspect of themselves. Um, uh, Instagram is the exploration of, and other aesthetic platforms. The, the is the cultivation of an aesthetic interest um, of oneself uh, in various ways. Uh, it goes on and on. You know, I do, deal with five or ten different platforms there. But um, my my argument is that people are, through these media platforms, are, are fashioning different aspects of themselves. Uh, and each each platform is a different conceptual structure. That there there are various premises which animate the space of the platform. Um, there's a certain language you use when you're on each platform that you have to understand. Uh, that each platform is a kind of play space and a stage. 
it's a play space where people playing with each other, kind of playing with language almost, uh, develop the potentialities of the social media platform. And, um, and then it's a stage in which they exhibit um, uh, their, their expertise as kind of as they progress in understanding the proper use of the platform and the language of the platform. So they're, they're exploring these many dimensions of language and of themselves as they, as they do this. And uh, what, what's interesting is that many of the people I interviewed in the book had belonged to many different platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's not called that anymore, but uh, uh, ways, you know, um, and um, a certain cos- social media cosmopolitanism was arising through their exposure to all these different spaces and forms of language. And um, it's quite quite interesting the way people combine the platforms in interesting ways, the way they would switch between different forms of language. Um, and uh, so I, I analyzed that and I analyzed each, each language form that distinguished the different platforms. Um, I think we're losing it. So you're saying is Twitter a language? Yes, Twitter is a language, specific language. The language of Twitter is different from the language of Instagram is different from the language of Facebook, mm-hmm. but people like learning different languages um, switch back and forth between these um, different media and different platforms in ways that are quite fascinating. Uh, all to, all to as a, as a, a modern-day way of realizing the American ideal of self-invention and reinvention. And that's what we looked at at that, that chapter. So the idea of language was a narrative. The different narrative forms that you see on these different platforms are very crucial to to what we did. Interesting. And so now as somebody who wrote, just wrote a book, what do you see the role of, you know, of books in storytelling and communication going forward versus all of these emerging technologies? So it's not just that people are engaging or using a truncated, I guess you call it semi-literacy, that they're reading hashtags and um, but maybe not even re- even reading a whole article they're just kind of looking for keywords and, and whatever and the amount of time spent on each space is diminishing in, in some way and that's measurable through all the the analyses that have been done on this you would know better than me about that but you know the, uh, there's also a switch to more contemporary. There's Kindle, and there's there's a switch to more um, in-depth reading styles, which is still present. It's just not the dominant ethos today. Mm-hmm. And I had to I had to deal with that. The way we read today um, is a big part of the the book and its description of a new narrative style that's emerging. A more and that I describe that new narrative style as more presentistic. Uh, more immediate, uh, and a lot of people said that, but I, I chart that out in various ways. But there still is a space for these contemplative um, kind of and more reflective, in-depth reading styles, and they take place and are furthered by various technologies such as Kindle, such as what Wattpad is an interesting uh, idea of authorship as a kind of collaborative enterprise. Um, which furthers kind of reflective kind of reading and, and, and those sorts of dimensions. So it's not just a complete replacement. There are these other technologies which act as a balance to that. You know. And also, I found that when people did want to switch to more reflective reading styles, they often printed out and made annotations on, on paper and pencil are still extraordinarily important for people because this this reflective style and deeper engagement you know, still taking place. I found this not only with consumers, but with journalists, that they're learning all these new media and data analyses, forms and technologies and all that. But when they really wanted to, um, to get deep into a story and tell it, they often printed out these research papers and made annotations with pen and pencil and they would still you know block off um 
the theses and um, main points by writing them out, not not typing them. Even that's just you know in the the precincts of the most involved technologies, the people are still using pen and pencil in ways that are um, which were interesting to me as an anthropologist and uh, pointed to a new kind of emerging synthesis or uh, of of the digital and uh, you know what you would call it not the analog the uh, tactile you know and physical it's in ways that we can't always live in the matrix when we're reading or writing it's just like it's quite interesting to observe that and um uh, so i wouldn't say one is completely replacing the other but they're kind of making a new synthesis of things um, a new synthesis is arriving arising and that, that's interesting yeah, very interesting and an interesting opportunity for for all of us as well and uh, in terms of work. So who would you say the book is for? Is it you know, for anthropologists? Is it for anybody you know, that's involved in communication? Yeah. So the anthropologist traditionally been a kind of court jester or jack of all trades and supposed to be able to speak to many different audiences uh, because he, he takes from art history, he takes from... Uh, technology, uh, studies of media, he takes from studies of literacy, takes from, um, there are all these dimensions to anthropology. But you know, I'm an anthropologist and I draw on anthropological ideas to inspire business strategies. So I make the point in the book that uh, business anthropologists are in a particularly advantageous position. We can see the way that um, cultural value attaches to aspects of culture, which may have been given short shrift in traditional analyses. Um, we, we see the blending of commercial culture with uh, all sorts of highest ideals or the lowest uh, uh, conceptions of our culture. We're in, we're in a position so that we, we can't dismiss any arena of culture as beyond you know, our purview. We have to look at, you know, uh, automotive manufacturing and fashion. And, um, um, there's something of the spirit of Andy Warhol about the, the work of business anthropology in, in the sense that he never made distinctions between high and low art or, you know, or man ray. I mean, it was all grist for his mill. And I, that's kind of our position. So I think anthropologists who understand that can, can benefit from, but it's also from, for media communicators, um, people who um, create content in, in different media, uh, journalists, for instance, um, filmmakers uh, who are interested in creating different immersive forms for their films. Um, uh, media communicators are interested in changes in language. Um, it's for UX uh, people who interested in what people get out of specific technologies and platforms, like as we were talking before, social media platforms um, and the language used in those people who participate in those platforms. Um, it's, it's also for, I hope, business students, because I want to, to communicate to them the kind of humanistic and productive elements of these behaviors and technologies and goods and services I wanted to con I want them to take a different look at uh, the way they go about doing business really in order to um, to convince people of the humanistic and productive elements of some of these goods and services and technologies the way people move, uh, weave meaning around them and um, in order to make business people better citizens I mean um, and, and to, to strive toward different ways of doing business and uh, it's kind of my part of my mission, I think, rather than convincing cultural anthropologists about the worth of these sorts of approaches or even the sort of language that I use, which is I try to make a clear language. I mm -hmm. don't write the way I did when I wrote for academic journals. I mean, it, I, I have to um, not assume that my audience has any anthropological knowledge whatsoever, almost in many times. So I have to with that kind of clear language is in some circles, academics is frowned on, but um, means you're 
popularizer or something. But um, but that's my mission, really. You know, to have businesses be better citizens by revealing the human dimensions and of, of these technologies, and then having that insight fed back into them, into these very various technologies and products and services. As I said before, so putting human meanings back into the world is part of the anthropologist's mission. And, and business anthropologists, we're the ones who, who do that. Agreed. So books available on Amazon, everybody can look for it there. Um, and how about if anybody wanted to get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me at tom at moscioconsulting.com or uh, I have a website, uh, which I have to work on, but moscioconsulting.com can send me a message there and get a more in-depth view of the sort of projects I've worked on. And so there, there is, there's even some video content on there. I have to refurbish that, so to speak. But, uh, that's how you can... Uh, I also uh, <laughs> I wear many hats. Uh, I also write memoir pieces. So I have a literary hat. People want to know more about me. Great. Well, Tom, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.